One of the key aspects of Christianity that causes us to not be taken seriously. One of the key things that keeps us from really being seen as as people of God, one of the key things that causes uh, our world to look around and just say they are no different is the aspect of obedience in our faith to God. It is so key that if, if you don't get this, if you never get this, then I question whether you've ever come to faith in the first place. If somehow you became a Christian and somehow you believe that you can walk in any way that you want and you don't uh, find yourself in this place where you're saying, I, I want to walk with Jesus, I want to walk like Jesus did, then there's a question as to whether you've ever actually received the gift of grace in the first place. And so Paul, in the book of Philippians, has been, has been telling us, I've got to move this thing out of the way. Sorry. Totally, is it in my my path? All right. So Paul, (laughs) I get distracted easily, all right? Um, So Paul is telling us throughout the the book of Philippians here, uh, throughout the beginning here, he's, he's telling this church in Philippi, he is explaining to them, like, I want you to think differently. I want you to think differently than, than the way that you've thought in the past. I want you to walk differently. I want, you, I, want you, I want things to be different in your life. And I wonder how many of us have actually uh, integrated these things into our lives. I wonder how many of us have really uh, uh, drank in the scriptures and what it's saying here. We talked last week about what we call the, the Christ hymn or this poetic language about Jesus that is absolutely incredible. And it tells us about who uh, this God-man is. That even though he's God, he takes on humanity. He, he, uh, he, he does not allow his glory to be seen while on earth because he takes on the form of a servant or a slave. And in the end it says, he becomes obedient unto death. Even death on a cross. So Paul doesn't say that just to say, you know, look at Jesus and, and isn't that awesome? It's not just for that. Yes, it is that, but it's more than that. He tells us this because he wants us to see that Jesus is, yes, he's our Savior. But he's our model, though. He's showing us the way that he wants us to live, the way that life really is supposed to be lived, according to God. And so he's showing us this about who Jesus is, how God has poured out his immeasurable grace to us through Jesus Christ. And we must get that. But then he makes a quick turn here. And he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There's three key factors to this passage. There's three key things that I want you to see, and that is that it's really talking about God's work in us. It's talking about God's work in us. And then secondly, it's talking about our witness or my, my witness in, in my city and around the people that are in my life. So it's God's work, my witness, and then he ends with our joy. He ends with our joy. So we should be joyful about this. So take a look at the passage with me here. It says this. He says, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying that this is a matter of obedience. The, 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 the faith that you've been involved with, the, the, the faith that you've attached yourself to, is not just one of knowing something, but it's actually acting on faith. It's actually acting in the way that you claim to be. I don't know if any of you have ever been uh, you know, in a you know, work environment where you have somebody who has the title of boss, but does not act like the boss. I don't know if you've been in a family where somebody has the title of father or mother, but they don't act like a father or a mother. I don't know if you've ever been in, in situations where uh, somebody claims to be this, but you say, I don't think they are that. It doesn't look like that. And Paul is saying to us, he's saying that there is a level of obedience that must come in our lives. This level of obedience says this. It says that I am going to act in a way, I am going to respond in a way that is confirmation of what I say that I believe in. I'm going to act in that way. I'm going to think that way. I'm going to change the way that I think. I'm going to allow that to be changed, I should say, by God through the power of His Spirit. And so I'm going to begin to walk in a new way. See, there's this obedience that comes from the faith that we say that we have. It's this obedience of faith. When I say that I am trusting in Christ, it's saying that I am obedient to him, that I follow his ways. I'm a follower of him. And so his ways are best. And so I watch and I try to mirror who Jesus is. And so he's talking about obedience in that first verse. In that first section there, I should say. And he's saying, I don't just want you to do this in my presence, but much more not in my presence. It's not obedience to Paul. It's obedience to God. And he says, the way that you do this is that I want you to work out your salvation. I want you to work out what that looks like. I want you to walk that out. We'll see whether you really believe what you say that you believe. When somebody says, okay, I'm, I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm trusting him. I'm gonna, I, I, I want to become a Christian. And then they get baptized. That's the first step of obedience. If you don't follow in that step, it's simply saying, like, I don't want to follow Jesus in his fullness. That's the first thing. It's like walk in obedience by being baptized. That's the first thing. So there's this level of obedience. That's the first way that we work out our own salvation. But what is it saying here? It's saying work out out your own salvation, walk that out. It means to literally produce, to, to do something, to act on something. But what it can lead you to believe is that you are the one that is going to work for your salvation. You're going to be the one that makes it happen. You're going to be the one that causes this to take place in your life. But here's the truth. That, that is not the way that it works. And we'll get to that in just a second. But he says this. Just hang on to that for just a second. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, does God want you and I, does God want you and I to be uh, afraid of him? I mean, is this just another religion that's just, you know, uh, keeping people down and making sure that they're scared and threatening them with hell? No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want you to take so seriously the faith that you claim to have. I want you to be so serious about this. I don't want you to take it flippantly. I, I, I want you to take it seriously. I want you to be somebody who makes this a priority, not an afterthought. And so he's communicating to them that he wants them to stop kind of being complacent Christians. He wants them to stop just kind of taking it all in. In our, in our culture, it's, it's uh, I think Paul might say to us, I want you guys to stop being consumers. Consumers of the goods and services of the local church. And I want you to start acting in a way that's obedient to who I am. I, I I, I want you to actually walk out the salvation that you claim to have. And I want you to walk it out in such a way that it shows. And so 
He wants us to take it seriously because in verse 13 he says, For or because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now stop for just a second and think about what that just said. It said, I want you to work out your own salvation. I want you to produce something. Here's why. Because God has already produced something. The word there for work, it looks like energy. In the original language, in Greek, it looks like energy. That's, that's, that's how it's spelled. And so he's saying, it, because it is God's energy in you, it is God who has worked in you both to will and to energy for his good pr- pleasure. So he's telling them, like, God is already at work. God is already moving. God is already making something happen. God is already working in your life. And so... Why is that important? Well, it's because of this. God is not asking you to do what he has not already done in you. God is asking you to do what he has already done. He he is saying, this is who you are, now I want you to walk in that. This is, this is what it means. This is who I am. He shows us who he is on the cross. He shows us who he is through his resurrection and his exaltation. He shows us who he is. And he wants you and I to see that. And he wants us to be people who are, who are aware of this. And that is that it is not my work that is saving me. I can point back to the cross and I can say that is the work that saved me. And then I begin to respond to the gospel over and over and over again in my life. See, the gospel isn't just the beginning of your Christian life. It is the ongoing thing that takes place in your life. It is the ongoing result of what God has done in your life. So what does this look like? It looks like us, you and I, saying this, that it is not me that's making these things happen. It is not me that's going to cause these things to take place. It is God who's working in me. So what does that mean? It means that I cannot have any, any amount of pride about what I do for God. It means that my obedience does not speak to how great I am. It means that it speaks to how great God is. It speaks to how great God's work is in my life. It speaks to how incredible of a God he is. It is not speaking to how, what an incredible person I am. It merely shows this, and that is that our God is incredible. He is the only one who can affect change in your life. He's the only one that can cause you to have different desires. He's the only one that makes new things happen. See, people read that, and they begin to wonder, like, uh, if, I'm not, if, if I don't ever really walk in the way that God wants me to, then what does that mean about me? And the question you have to answer is, you have to answer, what is your deepest desire? What is your deepest desire? See, there's habitual sin that we love, but there's habitual sin also that we hate. Like, I don't want this in my life. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want, I don't want to be acting in these ways. See, the person that God is working in is the person who's listening to God and hearing from God as he convicts. He's convicting us and he's showing us, hey, what you're doing in the body, what you're doing in the flesh is not right with who I am. It's not in step with the work that I'm doing in your life. It's not in step with what I have called you to. It's not, it's not what I am desiring for your life. And so we say, man, like how in the world do I come to a place where I start doing what's right? How do we as a people group, and we, we all need to kind of confess here that every single one of us has been into a culture, has been ingrained into a culture, many of us into a Christian culture, 
that is consumeristic from the word go, that is all about us and our desires and needs and wants and things like that. All of us have to confess this and say, what we really need is that we need God to be the one that's going to change our desires. Do you know what good news this is? The good news is not that you're left to your own desires. The good news is this, is that Jesus changes your desires. For it is God who works in us. So if you're someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, he is the one who is in you working through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's working in you both to change your desires and to change your actions. But start with desires. I've told this story many times that I came to a point where I, I, I said, God, I want to follow you, and then I'd fall back into sin. I mean, this is the story of all humanity, really. But I, I would say, God, I want to follow you, but I, I keep kind of screwing it up. And so what the truth is that I, I know about myself is that like, I, I kind of feel like I don't want to follow you, God. But the thing about me is that I want to want to follow you. See, God's, God takes us right where we're at. Like, you may be in this place where you're like, I don't know how I'm ever going to get out of this mess of sin that I'm in. But here's the thing, is that what must happen in your life is that you can't just say, like, you can't just say, like, oh, I just, I just kind of want you. Sometimes you got to get really down and dirty, and you got to say, God, I want to want to want to follow you. And we pray that prayer to God, and we say, I want to want to want to want to be close to you, God. Like, I, I want to want to want to want to be in relationship with you, and I don't want to be in this ungodly relationship anymore. Or I don't want to act like this at work. Or I don't want to be somebody who's constantly not joyful and angry because of my past or what was done to me. God, I want to walk with you. See, here, this is such an amazing thing that God, when he saves you, he does not leave you to your own desires. He comes in and he changes the heart. He takes the heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. And he begins to soften who you are. He begins to change who you are from the inside out. See, God begins to change those things in us. He begins to change our heart. He begins to change our desires. And little by little, we begin to see results that end with actions. So he says... For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if your desires have changed, then what should be taking place is that God's work should be seen not just in the things that you want, but in the way that you act. Why? Because God is already working. You don't have to wait for God to work. God is working in your life. He's doing it right now. Like if you've received Jesus Christ as Savior... If God has saved you, it means he has come in and he is in your heart. He's in your life. And he is willing to change you right here and right now. And so Paul says, it can't just be that your desires change, but what God is doing in your life, your faith has got to be in not just that God is able to save you, not just that uh, Jesus went to the cross and, and paid for your sin, and that he was resurrected from the dead, and that he was born of a virgin, all of those, those things, but it's that it's, your faith extends to that he can change me, and he will change me. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He will do the work in your life do you have faith that God can do that? Do you have faith that God can change you? Because God is asking you to do what he's already done in you. God is asking you to do what he's already done. So that's God's work. The second thing is, is my witness. He says in verse 14, look at the, it's like a hard right that he takes right here. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
Like if this, all of these theological reasons, uh, all of this stuff about sanctification and justification and what Jesus did on the cross and his incarnation and all of these shun words, all of this theological stuff, like it, Paul goes from that and he says, like if this is true in your life, like if that's true, then this is what it should look like. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It literally means complaining and arguing. He says, I don't want you to be complaining and arguing with one another. There's another possibility, though, too. Complaining and arguing with God. Complaining and saying, God, I, I don't really want to walk in that way. I don't really want to stay in my marriage because it's uncomfortable for me. So we complain and we argue with God. Or we complain and we argue with the people that are spiritual leadership over us and say, I don't really want to. I just don't want to. That's essentially saying, it's, it's saying I'm complaining and I'm arguing against God. And it's not just about my marriage, but it's about the little things that are in my life. It's about the way that we operate as a church. Churches are absolutely known for complaining and arguing. It's horrific. It's awful. I want you to know that I feel like we've been in, incre in an incredible season where I at least don't know about it. And so thank you for doing that quietly. But that's the way that it goes, is that there's always complaining and arguing. You may have heard the stupid uh, stories about people complaining and arguing with one another about the color of the carpet or something. You know how we fix that? We bought the cheapest carpet that there is, the carpet squares. And the reason why it's so cheap is because it's mismatched. So everybody gets a piece of what they want, right? We're never going to have that issue. Here. I mean, if you go back in kids, that's why it looks like that, right? I mean, it was cheap. The complaining and arguing, the criticism, having a critical spirit towards the church, the church leadership, the elders. I don't like that guy, Matt. I don't like the way that he preaches or whatever. I don't like it sometimes either. So I, let's, we're in the same boat. Like it's, I don't know if you've ever tried to listen to yourself speak, but it's hard. Like when you listen to a, I, occasionally I'll listen to a sermon of mine and I'm just like, oh, uh, I don't know how many of you were in second service at Easter. You might know what I'm talking about right now. So I'm not even going to say it again just because it was just, it was awkward. It got weird there for a moment, but um, I think we cut it out of the podcast. But, uh, but the complaining and the arguing I mean, what a great season we've been in as a church because I see such incredible unity in our church. I see such incredible people. And one of the things that I see is that, is that when somebody has a problem, they go to the person. They don't talk about the person. They go to that person. And they, and they discuss these things with, uh, with them. Or if, there, if there's an issue that somebody has with, with uh, maybe somebody in leadership or something, they'll take somebody else with them and say, and say, you know, I was scared to come, but I wanted to come and talk to you. And so instead of there being complaining and arguing and gossip and backbiting and stuff like that, like things are actually being taken care of. They're actually being dealt with. But would you look at what Paul is talking about here? He's saying, like, all of these theological reasons, all of this stuff that you could learn, some of the most poetic stuff in the New Testament, some of the most incredible stuff in the New Testament, talking about Jesus. It's theological. It's incredible. And then he comes down to, I just want you to stop arguing. I want you to stop fighting. I want you to stop complaining. Why? Look at what it says. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights 
in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in, in vain or labor in vain. Did you see what he just did that? What he just did there? He, he, he was saying, I don't want you to grumble or complain. And it's because the way that you look to our society, the way that you are before God, is that when you're complaining and you're arguing, you at least do not even look like a child of God. See, you could go to church all day long. You could go to a thousand things throughout the city at various churches. You could do all kinds of things. And yet the simple fact is, is that if you're complaining, if you're arguing, if you're not walking in obedience with God in at least that area, the area that seems like, oh, that's just one of those, we'll soft pedal that sin. We'll soft pedal the gossip, the backbiting, the trash talk. Now Paul says, like, if that thing ain't right, you ain't right. You, you are at least not being seen as blameless. You are at least not being seen as innocent. You're at least not being seen as a child of God without blemish. Why? Because he's talking to these people and they're in the midst of this generation, this group of people. And he's saying that this world is crooked and twisted and yet... When we come to culture with our disobedience to God, even at the, what is seemingly the lowest level, gossip, trash talk, those types of things, it totally dashes our witness to pieces. What matters is this, is that if you claim to believe all of these things about the work of God through the cross and in your life, and if you're trusting in God in that respect, and you're saying, I want to walk in obedience, then what's going to take place is this, is that it is going to show in our culture it's going to show in your work. It's going to show in your family. It's going to show in your relationships. It's going to show in the way that you walk with the church. And as a result, what's going to happen is that you're going to shine like stars. You're going to, you're going to shine in the midst of the city that we live in. You and I are going to shine because of this. Because we decided that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that through his work on the cross and through the resurrection and through his exaltation, that what he says is true. And so when he uh, ascends to heaven and he, and he tells the disciples, I want you to wait here because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And that's really going to be better than me being here. Can you imagine that for a moment? Like just saying like, okay, uh, it's, I'm glad that, that Jesus is gone in some senses because he gave us the Holy Spirit and now, and now that, that is so much better. But how many of us even believe that? that? That Christ in you really is the hope of glory. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God gets into you and he changes things. How do we respond to that? How do we... How do we see that? See, Paul is, is thinking about a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 4 and 5. It says this, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and uh, they are a crooked and twisted generation. See, Paul's thinking about God's people. See, God's people have always done this. God saves a people for himself. It's Israel. He, he does all of these things for them. He shows them who he is. He takes them... Uh, he takes them through the waters. He guides them. He gives them food. And what happens? They end up complaining about the food. 
They either have too much of it or they have too little of it. But they're, they're complaining, they're arguing, they're fighting. And God looks at these people and he says, they have become the very thing that I was trying to save them from. I'm saving them out of Egypt. I'm saving them out of these people. And they have not become what I want them to become. They're becoming just like all of the other nations. So let me ask you this. How seriously do you take your obedience to God? Like when you read through the Christ hymn there in the early parts of chapter 2, and you read through verses 8 through 11, and that he even went to the cross, even death on a cross. Like he was so humiliated. He was so brutalized. He was, it, it was the most horrific death that could be. And Christians have walked around for ages like proclaiming this humiliation and this suffering. And then we come into our Christian life and we say, I, I cannot stand to suffer for God. I cannot stand to walk in obedience, which oftentimes leads to suffering. I can't stand to do it even though that's everything that God has done for us. That's everything. That's, that's the way that he has saved us. And we say, I can't. I can't. See, the, the great theological point is here that God's already done something in your life. And now it's time to work out that great thing in your life so that you can see that God is working in your life. And what's the result? He says in verse 17, I actually back up one, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's saying, I want you to hold fast to the word of life. What's the word of life? It's to Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Who is the word of life? It's Jesus. It's holding fast to Jesus. It's holding fast to the gospel message that is in Jesus Christ. It is the word of life. And when you hold fast to that, what takes place as he says, even if I am <clears throat> to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. See, Paul exemplifies what should be in our life as a result of Jesus. He's in prison. He is in great discomfort. And he says, even if my life gets poured out, like if, if it's just seen as next to nothing, it's just all that it is is just poured out like it's this liquid on this sacrifice. He says, even if that takes place, he says, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Like, it's okay if my life seemingly comes to nothing. Why? Because I have the word of life. It's because I have Jesus and that's all that I need. It's because... Jesus is everything to me. It's because he's the one that has saved me. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So God works. Turns into our witness or my witness and it translates into our joy see there's nothing worse than obedient Christians who are joyless there's nothing worse there's nothing worse than having a relationship with God that has no such joy in it as you walk in obedience to him or with him 
See, the thing I think that we suspect is that our greatest joy comes from our favorite sins. Our greatest joy is found in keeping things for ourselves. What, what it says is this, is that I'm most joyful when I have all of my stuff. I'm most joyful when I can do whatever I want. I'm most joyful when I can be in whatever relationship I want. Be, and the reason is this, is because your greatest joy, my greatest joy, is at least sometimes never found in Jesus. When it says he's the word of life, we don't believe that he is the way, the truth, or the life. We don't believe that in him is any type of life that we could live abundantly. We don't believe it. And so therefore we don't act in obedience. See, if there's faith, then there's obedience. We don't believe those things, and so as a result, what takes place is that our true joy, our lasting joy, is never found in Jesus Christ. It's always found in us getting the stuff that we want. And so complaining and arguing is really just a way to say, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, my joy isn't found in Christ. It's found in what you do for me, church church leader, church, other church member, family member, wife, husband, co-worker. You and I say, essentially, my ultimate joy isn't found in Christ. It's found in what you do for me. It's found in how you honor me. It's found in how you give me glory. It's found in how you make me feel and whether I get further up the ladder it's found in those things. My real, my true, my lasting joy isn't found in Christ. It's found in something else. So Paul's telling us, he's saying that when you acknowledge the fact that God is already working and you begin to participate, you begin to obey in faith that God is already working in my life. He began a good work in me. He's going to carry it on to completion. I'm walking in step with who he is. I see him on the cross. I see what he's done. I see how hor horrific it was. And so therefore, I can pour my life out as a drink offering. I can pour my life out in this city. I can pour my life out for other people, for my spouse, I can pour my life out because Jesus poured his life out for me. I can pour my life out because I see how incredibly excruciating that pain of death was. I can pour my life out. So let's, let, let's, let's just talk for a second. Um, what would be different if you and I really believed that there's joy in obeying what God is already doing in our life. What would be different? I can, I can tell you this, that if, if we were to truly believe that, every single one of, one of us would be saying, what is it that God has called me to that I'm not already doing? And I think it starts in our marriages in part. Not everybody here is married. I know there's a ton of folks here that are, that are saying, but let me speak to marriage here for just a second. You have no joy in your marriage, perhaps, because you've never been obedient to the faith. You've never been obedient to what God is already wanting to do. You have no joy in your marriage. It's it's a chore when you come home from work. It's, it's exhausting because you're always arguing, and it's because you refuse to walk in obedience. You refuse to walk in obedience because it's just too hard. It's too difficult. And men, your responsibility in your marriage is 
to model that first. It doesn't mean it happens. Some of you are, are, I don't know what the theological word for it would be, but you're punks, all right? You just refuse. And you are so concerned with, you're so sold on that your joy does not come from Christ that you're willing to take it out of your wife. You're not making me joyful. You don't make me happy. And instead of intentionally going to the cross the way that Jesus did, through the humiliation, being a man, by the way, and going through the humiliation of laying yourself down, See, built into the core of who you are as a sinful human being is this unwillingness to lay yourself down. It is the core of sin. It is pride at its heart. It's saying, I know better than God. It's ultimately saying, my ultimate hope, my ultimate joy is not found in Jesus. It is found, wife, in what you do for me. And so, here's what takes place. Every time you assert that, You just perpetuate. You just extend. You just keep adding heap upon heap of pain onto your marriage because you refuse to be obedient to Jesus and to walk in what he's already doing in your life. And instead, you keep saying, but she, but she, but she. None of that matters because you refuse to lead in this way, which is sacrificially laying yourself down. In no way does your leadership in the home mean that you get to domineer your wife, that you get to order her around. If it means anything, it means that you're bleeding out on the floor because you've served your wife so much. But, ladies, you thought you were going to get away with it. I mean, it's a little late, all right? Uh, You thought you were going to get away with it. But some of you have punks for husbands. Like, they're not going to listen, right? It is no, the call on your life is no less. You're still a Christian. You're still somebody who follows Jesus. Your greatest joy cannot be in whether your husband acts like Jesus to you. Do you know why? He's never going to be Jesus, right? It's never going to happen. I don't know who you want him to be. You've watched too many romantic comedies, perhaps. You have seen too many movies that are just, I don't know, absurd. And you're waiting for this guy to come home as your knight in shining armor and to act exactly the way that you want him to. And he's never going to fulfill it as long as the way that your husband acts is your greatest joy. And let me tell you what that is. It's flat out sin. It's disobedience. Because Jesus isn't your joy. So your obedience comes in laying your life down as well. I'm not saying submitting to abuse. Sometimes people get confused about this. Never are we saying that you should submit to verbal or physical abuse. There may be other kinds of abuse. We should talk about it if you feel like that. What I am saying is that you allow yourself to serve on the level that Jesus has served you. And when you refuse to do that, you're just as much a part of the issue. You're just as much a a part of the problem because you refuse to make your greatest joy Jesus. Because the outworking of all of this is not just that everyone else will act the way that I want them to and it'll be easy to serve them. No. The outworking of this is that you may be poured out like a, a drink offering and really the way that you're serving your husband, it is a sacrifice of faith. What does that mean? He doesn't get it. He's still a jerk. He still walks around like a punk. He's still whatever. And yet this is your sacrifice of faith. As you pour yourself out, as you pour yourself out, as you pour yourself out, 
But let me tell you what's amazing. What I think is amazing is that when a husband and a wife both get it and the joy that comes from that. Have I told you how much I love my wife? I want to tell you that I love my wife so much. Like, there are times when, when, like recently, when we've sat and we just said, I don't know what God did, but like, it's amazing. Like, I'm not just saying this. Like, I'm waiting for us to have like a big argument or something. I mean, and we have big arguments, but we work through those things. And I'm just going, God, how could you be this good to us? Like, what is this about? And I want to tell you that, that I do not want to put myself on a pedestal. Yes, I am the pastor of this church, one of the pastors, I should say, as I'm one of the elders. But I want to tell you that in my life, as I think about my marriage, as I'm thinking about the way that my wife and I interact, is that the joy that comes from being married to this woman, the joy that comes from being one flesh with her, and operating together and working together, like marriage is so stinking good. And the reason is, is because my greatest joy is not my marriage. My greatest joy is Jesus. And what do I get? I get a joyful marriage. Why? Because my marriage isn't my joy. My joy is Jesus. My joy is walking with him. Why? Because he's already done the work. Because he's already in me. He's working to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And when I have joy in Jesus, he gives me joy in my marriage. And I just get to look back at God and just say, God, why? Why is this so good? And that's about the only thing that I can take from this for his good pleasure in verse 13. To see God just be happy. It's like when I taught my son how to ride a bike and I was uh, my oldest son, Marshall, and I just remember just going, dude, you're riding a bike. This is so cool. Oh my gosh. It's just, it's just, it's just pure pleasure. It's good pleasure. I read this story about uh, Jack Nicholas, and there was this, some golf thing. I don't know anything about golf, whatever. You got a stick and you hit a ball, but uh, there's some tournament where sometimes they have a family member that hits the last shot for them, or whatever. And he had his grandson hit this last shot, and his grandson goes up and just hits it out of the park. I just mixed two sports metaphors, right? <laughs> I just want to be honest with you. I hate sports, all right? I hate it. I watch it sometimes. I get into it a little bit. I'm sorry. If you talk to me about something with football or baseball or whatever, I, I'll nod and just be like, ah, yeah. His grandson hits the ball, right? <laughs> this is totally breaking down, right? This is, uh, he hits the ball and uh, gets a hole in one. And, and he, he was absolutely elated. And he, this, is, this is what Jack Nicholas said. He said, what I did doesn't make any difference to me. Watching your grandson do something, it's really special. The, the joy, there was tears, they were hugging, there were all of these things. Like, is that the smile of God? Is that his good pleasure? Like, when you see that happening, you see the joy in this grandfather, just like, yes! You hit a hole in one. Oh my gosh. Like, is that, is that, I think that's God's good pleasure. He's doing this. He's been working in us. He's been training us. He's been, he's been moving us to desire him. And it's his good pleasure to give us the greatest joy through Jesus and it is in and through that that you have joy in your life. We lack joy because Jesus is not our joy. We lack joy because we do not walk in obedience to the faith. 
we're not walking in a confident faith that God has done something amazing already. He's already done the work. He's changing my will. And now I need to walk in obedience, making him my only joy, my only hope. And guess what? It's amazing. Let's pray. Oh God, I don't know how many of us are here this morning. I hope it's all of us who would say my greatest joy is oftentimes not Jesus. Lord, I'm not hoping that that's the case, but I'm hoping that we would confess where that is. Lord, the discomfort, the arguing, the fighting, it all points back to that Jesus is not our greatest joy. So Lord, I'm, I'm praying that this morning that, that we would take seriously that you were obedient to the Father, Lord Jesus. Not just in little areas, but Lord, to the point of death. And you suffered and you died and you were humiliated for us. Or you bore the wrath that we deserve and we are so thankful for that. So God, would you work in us? Would you change our hearts? Would you, God, would you, God, I'm praying that there's people in this room right now that are, that are beginning to believe Maybe for the first time, but they're, and maybe they've been a believer for a while, but they're beginning to believe, yes, God is already working in me, and I can act on that. God's already done the work, and, and He wants me to obey. Lord, would you do that in us? Lord, in the marriages that are here, or for those that are single and and wanting relationship, Lord, that they continue to obey you, to not make having a relationship their greatest joy, but to make you their greatest joy. Lord, we ask that you'd use your word in our hearts this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.